there's this tendency, even within the church, I think, to kind of equate like orthodoxy in faith with this kind of left-right divide. I mean, and that doesn't necessarily make sense. And so I think that's a kind of interesting, fruitful place, particularly for the arts. In that space, you love sort of the underlying logical nature of the tradition, but then being willing to be kind of subversive, more or less everywhere else, is in fact kind of like a, a, a perfect attitude, I think, for making interesting art. What role does art have in breaking conventional structures while preserving things like orthodoxy, religiosity, and tradition? How do we rediscover the value of art in an age where images are generally perceived as marketing strategies? In today's episode, computer scientist and accomplished Catholic visual artist, sculptor, woodworker, and painter, Anthony Santella shares compelling new insights on how the contemporary and the ancient give mutual life to one another. The kind of ridiculous solution that like pops into my head is we should all go and build random folk shrines in our home parishes. Like, that's what we need. We need like more folk expressions of visual religiosity. I mean, that would be awesome to my mind. You know, every church in the nation get ourselves a nice little statue of Our Lady of Guadalupe sitting outside somewhere and everybody just puts anything they want there. That would be like amazing. That would be, <laughs> that could fix America right there. As believers, we must constantly renew our mission and find new ways of sharing our faith informed by our traditions. By rediscovering new expressions of truth and beauty, we can rediscover art as a means to the divine. This is Living the Call. Anthony Santello, welcome to the show. Thanks. Uh, happy to be here. <laughs> I've been looking forward to having you on the show, and of course, um, you know, I've been prepping for this as best as one can when you're doing like, you know, a thousand other things. But, you know, one of the things that really struck me about you is even in describing, you know, who, I was talking to my wife, well, who are you having on the show? And I was like, I'm, I'm having a conversation with Nancy Santella. And she's like, oh, well, tell me about Anthony. And I was like, well, he's a computer scientist, artist, sculptor. <laughs> and it was just this paradox that sort of immediately emerged because oftentimes you find people dedicated maybe in the artistic realm, others dedicated in the scientific realm, but very seldomly do you find people that have kind of proficiency, you know, at both of those. So I, I, I'm sure you've talked about this or somebody else has brought this up, but I, th I find that super interesting. Yeah, my actual theory is that you they're about more than you would think, but you don't notice them because you're always meeting them with one hat or the other and you, and you sort of learn not to to reveal your secret identity kind of in sort of crossing the streams there. Oh, that's um, interesting. Just because they're so different worlds. I mean, I know uh, five or six people probably that cross science and the arts. With like with, with pretty with proficiency at that level, like you know, PhD researcher, but also like a pretty well, uh, you know, well traveled artist. Uh, two or three. Yeah, I was gonna probably. say probably narrows it down <laughs> a little bit after that. Well, look, man, it's a it's kind of a first for me, so I'll I'll uh, I'll revel in the novelty for a little bit. I actually think you're right, though, in a way that um maybe another reason for that is that you you might not necessarily be a, a good at you know, self-promoting that aspect, right? You just kind of like 
operate. Maybe some folks, maybe you do that too. I don't know. How often does your art come up in your professional travels on the kind of scientific front? Pretty infrequently. It, it happens every now and then. I've like done a couple pieces of work related to, uh, you know, artwork related to sort of my day job in biological research. So the, and the imagery, because I work with a lot of sort of beautiful imagery in the day job, sort of microscopy images of developing organisms, um, that sort of thing. Mm. So those, those forms, those like kind of really fascinating organic forms, I think kind of creep in here and there, but it, it doesn't happen as often as you might think. How would you describe the, well, I, I guess let me start, let me back up. How would you describe if somebody were to say, hey, what do you do? Like you're on the subway, mm -hmm. you're in New York, right? You're, you're a New Yorker, and maybe you guys haven't been in the subway too often, but the next time that you're in the subway, or if you've been in since, um, somebody says, hey man, what do you do? Yeah, so it's actually tempting to start with uh, being a sculptor, not just because I'm sort of passionate about it, but also because it's easier to explain to people. Whereas, you know, starting with, well, I'm a computer scientist, so I program, but I work at a hospital and I teach computers to look at developing worms. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's quite it, the conversation. You lost starter. them at worms as a rule. Yeah. Yeah. Starting um, with, I'm a sculptor, probably leads to, breaks the ice a little faster. Yeah. Than worms. Is that, is, I mean, in terms of the actual work that you do, because I, I know, again, very passing limited amount of, of depth in terms of what it is that you do. And by the way, for the record, everybody who knows me knows that the left side of my brain atrophied right around the age of six. So I've got very, you know, right hemisphere, good to go. I'll, I'll be with you on the art, but on the left side of the equation, uh, it's going to be a struggle. But how would you describe your work? Like what it is that you do? I know about Sloan Kettering a little bit, but what is it? What is the work that you're doing? What's its end? Yeah, so I actually support a lot of different projects. So it's mostly basic uh, developmental biology or sort of biomedical research. Um, so I'm helping scientists. So I'm primarily collaborating with others, helping scientists who want to quantitate some phenomenon that they're observing, cells moving for example, from one part of a developing embryo to another part of a developing embryo to become this part of the nervous system, um, to try and map out the, the way that works, sort of the way structure emerges um, in, in organisms or you know, in tumors, um, in, in some sense understanding like um, how those physical processes unfold and, and measuring those processes. And you obviously need a lot of sort of computational expertise to, to do that in these giant data sets that can be terabytes in size. Wow. And the application of that kind of research, Anthony, what does that lead to? So in the, in the short term, it's kind of basic science. Um, you're trying to understand how sort of physical processes unfold and how those represent the sort of underlying molecular processes. You know, this gene turns on, and so this cell knows to crawl that way and then become a neuron that's going to be some part. I mean, we're, we're working with worms here primarily, though I work with other models, but, you know, this part of a worm's brain that controls its ability to find food. And if, if something goes wrong with that one neuron, maybe it can't find food. Um, ultimately, the goal is to understand kind of how some of those same developmental processes unfold in, in people, how they might reflect 
in tumor development, for example, the way sort of the same patterns that sort of build you go wrong in the context of cancer, for example. And so, you know, 20, 50 years down the line, those might inform drug targets. Um, but in the short term, it's kind of basic research. Now, I, there's a there's a thousand different things I want to touch on with you because your 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 background and your body of work artistically and academically are very, very interesting to me. So we're going to cover a lot of ground, but I have to dive in just on that one point on a question that you just kind of brought up in my, in my mind. You're a person of, you know, deep uh, belief, right? You're a person of faith. You uh, define yourself or uh, to the extent that I've read about you as a, as a Catholic artist, right? You kind of put the Catholic in front of it. I have to imagine that your view of that worm's brain and it's the understanding of its, you know, all these intricacies must have you at some point like sit back and go, man, God's just amazing that he's like takes the amount of time and creative genius to kind of show us his creation, even in these tiny beings that are just but like a little tiny reflection of who we are as these as these organisms right and they don't have the benefit of will and reason and the things that make us you know human beings and i'm wondering i'm assuming you've had that thought or maybe other thoughts like it but do, do you find yourself when you're with your peers who maybe don't share that background do you is that limiting to you do you have great conversations with them anyway like walk us through a little bit of that dynamic yeah yeah no it's a, it's an interesting question um I mean, I think scientists in general, whatever their faith, do have kind of an appreciation of the sort of incredibly astonishing, complicated nature of the processes they're studying, right? I mean, a a scientist can spend their entire, you know, 40-year career mapping out how one neuron that does something about chasing food in the head of a worm that's like smaller than a sliver off of your fingernail and can become at least science famous for doing that. Um, And they're extraordinarily complex systems. And there's this kind of wonder that, that you have when a little bit of it starts to make sense, when you can kind of see the underlying pattern to like the logic of how this living, you know, creature has been assembled by the the processes that are sort of encoded in its DNA and and play out over time. I mean, there's something amazing about like watching a a worm embryo assemble itself, um, which you can do with sort of fluorescence microscopy these days, like microscope techniques are such that you can you can watch these things unfolding um, at the level of individual cells. And there's there's something really extraordinary about that. And I, I mean, it does, I think, give you a, a deeper appreciation, which I think most people of faith have on some level, but I think you can easily forget about the sort of amazing wonder that's around you. You know, you could spend your entire life staring at a blade of grass and, and marveling about all the work God put into that. Um, but, I, you know, having to focus down in that way in a day job can be a privilege in a, in a certain sense. And like, there's something almost meditative about it. I remember reading a story about Da Vinci, who's, by the way, probably one of the best examples of this scientist artist that maybe that I know of 
but he he reflected a lot um, as a child on images of nature, right? The blade of grass, the bug, the bird, and all of that, and and you know deeply, deeply studied it, deeply tried to understand it, and ultimately that, at least on some level, right, kind of oriented him or pointed him, you know, towards the divine, towards the transcendent. Do you do you find yourself? occasionally having conversations with your peers who may not share your faith background about these things or not? Yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting question. It, it doesn't touch there too often. That's the, the funny, like compartmentalized nature of the world we live in. I think where like you can get really excited about this tiny aspect of the way a cell develops or, you know, uh, just you can click with someone over kind of solving it like a math problem. Um, there aren't, I'm actually terrible at math. Um, funnily enough, I find that hard to believe, I have, but okay. Yeah. Right. Well, they say you study computer science. If you could actually have added, you would have become a mathematician instead. Well then maybe um, that's what I should have done, Anthony, because I couldn't add. So uh, maybe I just missed my calling <laughs> as a computer scientist. Right. Um, but because you're a little bit compartmentalized, you kind of, I think, tend to confront it as that math problem. And it's sort of wondrous as a math problem. Um, but you you don't necessarily always connect it up um, to the rest of the universe around you. Um, and I think that's a universal sort of temptation in the the world we live in where you kind of like are very, have a very strong temptation to sort of narrow down. Sure. And, and, and the, uh, the sort of strategy against that in a way is, I mean, at least in my, in my life I found is kind of this desire and prayer for integrity, right? For literally the word mm -hmm. integrate, right? To bring in all these different aspects. I've struggled with that personally, where I've been very compartmentalized in my own experience, especially because I'm ordained, right? So as a deacon, it's, very easy to play the part, like, you know, kind of doctor on TV mm -hmm. kind of thing. And then you find yourself in a conference room in some secular, you know, uh, Silicon Valley company and you realize, wait a minute, am I like, do people know I'm a deacon? Because they probably should somehow, mm -hmm. right? Not by my name or title, but by how I behave and what I do. And so it's been a struggle for me. I think that there's a, there's a big part of that, maybe even more so today. I don't know if you find that with the way that we're, the technology enable our compartmentalization in a way. Um, mm -hmm. but I, I definitely see what you just said. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's a, it's a challenge, I think, to be integrated in that sense, because we do, everyone does this, I think, maybe because I've got a foot in the art world, a foot in the world of faith, a foot in the world of, you know, science. Um, that's, that's more feet than I actually have, you <laughs> <Right>. know, so <laughs> while doing that dance, um, you, you do kind of. I think have to fight against the instinct to kind of compartmentalize and like play one role in one context and, and another, um, because those are worlds that aren't always, um, completely at peace with each other. You identify. So there's like a, sorry, go ahead. Ah, uh, yeah, no. So there, there's, there's a challenge there, you know, and one easy thing to do is kind of just sort of hide your head, so to speak, you know, keep those other hats sort of tucked behind your back and oh, that's yeah. sort of safer. Um, especially technology, polarization, um, that, that's kind of an understandable temptation. But 
I think there's something about staying open that like if you stay kind of open, the world comes knocking. Um, you know, it's like the old image of Christ at the door. Um, but the, the world does come knocking and like you have those opportunities to be integrated, I think. You just kind of got to be ready to see them when they come at you. You you said, I'm going to quote you, I don't know how often that happens, but um, I read something about yours that touched on a little bit of this compartmentalization, or maybe related to this compartmentalization that I thought was a super interesting paradox. And I'd love to maybe just dip, dive deeper into it. Um, you said, as it related to visual arts and, uh, and faith, you said that there's a very limited space for visual arts that explicitly grapples with faith, at least in a respectful way outside of a church context. In the same way, there's a fairly limited acceptance of the visual arts in many church communities. And I thought that was, mm-hmm. first of all, I acknowledge that and I affirm that. That is definitely true put perhaps more elegantly than I would have. But it, it why is that? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, it's a tricky one on both sides, right? I mean, we all kind of know about the sort of polarization on the like... The, the, let me... The, some part of it is obvious. The part that's less obvious and interesting to me is kind of why the arts aren't as prominent or, or welcome in the church as you would think. Obviously, the church is historically the patron of the arts. Um, but somewhere in there, and I think that has to do with the loss of for art in some sense of its status, like somewhere in there, right? Mm. The arts became- Entertainment. uh, Entertainment, a a sort of a plaything of the rich, a commodity that's like a blue chip stock to be, have you park your money in. And I mean, it is honestly right in our our society at like the the top level in the the visual arts. And so, but it, it kind of goes further back than that, where I think the, the skill of depiction was sort of what was important to the church in in some sense historically right that that ability to tell stories and that that role has been progressively eroded you know where even like illustration people don't really use traditional illustration anymore even carefully crafted digital montages aren't used that much Um, you know, so images are kind of disposable and I think there's been a little bit of this sort of shift in the culture of faith to sort of trust words and distrust images, Hmm. um, because of that. Um, I mean, that's... I'd never thought about the idea of art, you know, principally as a way to, you know, kind of represent or communicate. And, you know, as we as we get into more of a multimedia, you know, existence when, you know, that started probably with the printing press and continued in a rapidly accelerating fashion till the mass media and then now social media. But it it does make sense that the degree to which you're using art less to actually communicate that the less prevalent that art is in perhaps people's lives. And, and so it has to take on some other form. Um, and, and I also agree with you that I think art now is almost like a, 
it's like real estate or cryptocurrency or some other thing you're parking money in and or at least at those echelons um and and that's sad and, and and tragic in a way and maybe on some level drive some of the distrust in those church circles to art i mean somehow uh i, I mean i hadn't thought about that maybe that's maybe that's the case yeah no it, it's it's interesting i don't i don't have a complete explanation for it but like when you think of visual images I think many people these days more think about them as sort of propaganda and pornography metaphorically than mm -hmm. they do about as, you know, uh, a visual way of telling the story of the gospel, which was certainly what they meant to the historical church when the church was the patron of the arts. Was was the church or your particular faith walk... Um you know, what, what role did art play in that for you? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, in a weird way, I, re I think I reflect the bias I'm telling because though I've always been an artist, my kind of return to my faith in college was more about reading. Um, I was like really influenced by sort of the, the Catholics I met in college, and, but also sort of writing of people like Chesterton or, or, mm -hmm. or Lewis. Um, and so there is that element where kind of ideas rather than images sort of uh, have a primacy. Though I was brought up going to art museums, so I saw a lot of religious art. Um, I have sort of a deep sort of attachment to the traditional imagery. Um, to, you know, the, the, as a kid, sort of being impressed, you know, by the, the patron of my grandmother's hometown in Italy, La Madonna della Civita. And there's a, oh, yeah. a sort of large uh, silver image of her. I mean, it's a historical Byzantine icon that's, that's housed in the town, but there's a large silver image that's sort of taken through the streets and prayed. And like, that was like something from a movie, sort of to see it, you know, this giant statue made out entirely out of silver as a kid. Um, so there is some element of kind of wonder that I think can come through the visual um, that you don't necessarily see. But there, there's an interesting tension there between the different kinds of communication that you get sort of from, from the visual and from more abstract mm. forms of communication. When did you realize you were an artist? Like how early on? Did you go from this, maybe an appreciation to like, oh, I can actually create? Yeah. Uh, who knows? I'm still trying to decide if I'm an artist now. Um, All right. Let me. I mean, be the, I was one of those one kids. To tell you, Anthony, you are okay. <laughs> it's the only reason we're the only reason we're talking is what your one of your works did to me when I first saw it on the cover of Dappled Things, um, which we can talk about. But so there's no question that if the idea of art is to move people towards you know, some greater emotion, especially the transcendent one that you've achieved that. So I'll, I'll settle the argument uh, for you. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, but it's a good point that like, in some sense, it's always play also for me. It's hopefully hmm. play in a virtuous sense, in the sense that you're trying to rehearse the good, which is in some sense what play should be, right? To understand it better and to be ready to act it out when like, real life comes calling. Um, but it's always been play. I mean, I was one of those kids that was always building little huts out of mud and twigs with my, my twin brother. 
Um, and I, I whittled a little bit as a kid and I drew a ton. Um, I feel like it was only probably in my early 20s when I started feeling like an artist in the sense that I was exhibiting work and like people were accepting me as an artist. I mean, I was always doing it, but I feel like a transition happened there where it became like a public thing rather than a thing I just did for myself. Was that around a particular work that caused that pivot where you did something you're like, oh, this one I want to show other people besides just kind of tinkering and playing? Do you remember that moment? Yeah, for for there, there wasn't really a, a, a crystal clear moment. I mean, I was always making work and here and there um, I would show it like, you know, we, even when I was in school, um, I think it was, it was kind of more than anything else. The first efforts, humiliating as they were to sell it, that kind of convinced me, even though they were enormously unsuccessful, the idea of like putting yourself out there for real and like ex hoping that someone like is convinced also, uh, it was kind of a turning point. What was your, what was the um, first, what was the first medium for you? Painting, really. For me, it was it was painting to begin with. Um, I worked, a, I still work in, in watercolor and oils. I mean, which are both sort of beautiful media in their own way. Um, very different. Um, but it was definitely painting first. Uh, it was only later that I sort of switched to primarily being a sculptor. Um, and, and a woodworker though too right and those I mean like to yeah. me because I don't know either I mean they can I can imagine that they can be confused with one another but I can also imagine that the type of thing you're actually making the material you're using has a great deal of uh, impact on the actual method and the process especially when you're thinking about wood is it is it the most sculptors are also woodworkers or is that an anomaly no that that is kind of anomaly there definitely are contemporary sculptors that work primarily in wood but it's not that common, um, in part because wood's a pretty slow um, medium to work in. You know, you're, it's kind of painstaking. You take stuff off. You can't put it back. Um, you've got to work slow because there's no going back. Mm. I mean, I think it appealed to me because you're working directly. Um, you know, you do it. There it is. It's done, as opposed to more traditional processes like casting in bronze or in resin, where there's like a very elaborate mold making process. Or if you're working in ceramics, firing, um, there's something nice about working directly. You know, the final surface your fingers touch is the actual final surface of the piece. Yeah. There's also something that's nice about wood because it's a, you know, it's a living, it's a natural material. And it's also one that at least in the Northeast, you're surrounded by discarded. So I, I work entirely in recovered wood from trees that come down in storms or taken down by utility companies. Mm. And that's, that's actually from a, you know, a place of like stewardship of creation, that's that's like a big thing for me to work entirely in recovered materials. Um, that's beautiful, yeah, and 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 very timely, obviously. But it's always been important. My uh, my uh, father in law is a master woodworker, a carpenter, and um, one of one of my very favorite. He's done amazing. He's not an artist, obviously, but he's he's a great craftsman. 
And one of the greatest things that he's ever built that I've seen is entirely out of recovered wood, essentially scaffolding, which as a New Yorker, you see all the time, right? But it's this super crazy hard like wood that's just crazy durable and it's got paint splotches and all kinds of stuff. And when my kids were young, we we went through a period of time where we didn't have any table because, you know, you're always afraid as a parent with young kids that they're going to fall and hit themselves on the corner. But then as they got bigger, I had all boys, right? So they in the house at at, at that point, young the younger ones. And so it was, I want to create something that's really durable and indestructible. And I said, build me the most indestructible coffee table you've ever built. And he used scaffolding. And, you know, to this day, when I look at it, it's got like the imprint of the date of whenever they put it up there. It's got little paint things on it, but it is amazing. Amazing. And it tells such a cool story because it's already been something. You get this, I'm sure, automatically, but I'm saying I've always looked at that and said, wow, that's really cool that it, that it was doing – it was something else and then it got reclaimed and made. Yeah, there's history there. There's like uh, – you know, there's life, the life of everyone who touched that piece of wood, who, you know, did their job with that piece of wood for years and then it's a second life to it. Anthony, has there been a, I mean, kind of going back to this idea of the church circles and the art circles, right? Um, and seems like we've got a lot of work to do, perhaps in both, right? Inspire more artists to grapple with the divine and inspire more church communities to be open to art. But how, can, can you share, like, has that ever been a point of specific tension into, like for you, like something that you've had to like look at and go, oh, such and such wants this, but I'm finding, like, has it, has it created any kind of tension for you personally? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, yes in the sense that I think it's a tension that I'm always thinking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, in that, uh, you know, I would, I'd love to be doing church work, right? Um, I'd love to, I mean, and I do, obviously, I do religiously themed pieces on sort of my own, at least in part. I mean, all of my work is sort of motivated by faith, but some of it isn't explicitly so. Um, I think, I think the problem is trying to understand what sort of where sort of opportunities are for that dialogue. And I, I, I've definitely worked on trying to build some um, curating shows in churches, though I, I, that's a good example of an explicit tension where I've sort of worked with a group in New York um, openings, curating exhibits in um, the Church of St. Paul the Apostle near Columbus Circle. And I mean, it's been a great experience, but like, the the politics and the tension there of like um you know this person doesn't like that there's art in the church at all you know this sort of uh, i mean literally that was a comment that actually hmm. someone made that like art doesn't belong in a church um i mean in the in the context it sounds in the context maybe it's less ridiculous and comical than it sounds sure. since you would hope every church is full of beautiful art and that it it was contemporary art it wasn't necessarily people were expecting to see there mm-hmm. the hope was to build a dialogue but people don't necessarily you know it's it's people's faith home um and it's understandable that people are touchy but there's you know and so i think that's an element of it too that there's like a fear on a lot of 
rightly so on sort of some pastor's part that like if you go push the boundaries even a little bit like people are going to be up in arms yeah um well, I think it's a balancing act, right? It's remembering as vis-a-vis -vis contemporary art, remembering that in the 16th century, Michelangelo was contemporary, right? But then it's also yeah. it's also understanding the perhaps slippery slope that, you know, that's the part of the Christian tradition, I think, that makes art so so important and so necessary, but that, you know, true art in a way, maybe in all ways, like really does orient you toward something you know, ultimately transcendent, whether that's, I mean, in my opinion, whether that's, you know, an, a, a virtue, um, a God-given emotion, a a relationship, a, a a role, an understanding, but like in the absence of that, if it's just art because I say it is, you know, and that that is, you know, mm -hmm. to, to a large degree, you know, a lot of sectors, that is the case, right? Um, I can understand the yeah. reticence if, if that was the context, I guess. Yeah, it, it is a challenge, right? I mean, and it's it's hard to say. You know, there there's certainly art out there that does seem to exist purely to shock, um, and like believes that there's some value to that shock, um, and maybe there is, and maybe there isn't. But some of it clearly doesn't belong in a church. Um, so there, there's always like a, a a dance there. I mean, I have displayed pieces in churches that offended people. I've also displayed pieces in churches that have, you know, deeply moved people. Um, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit a Rorschach mm. test for what you, what you think about art, what you expect to find in it, whether you expect to find something spiritual, whether you expect to find something offensive. I mean, you're going to tend to find it. In the in those cases where the person was offended, was it because you were attempting to represent something that they held in their imagination that ultimately is not representable, like an angel? Because I know you've done that, or was it more like I just don't think I think this is not good and it shouldn't be here? It's ugly. I don't like it. Was it a aesthetic thing? Yeah, um, I think, and I don't dismiss this. I mean, I I think in in the case that I'm thinking of, it was sort of the sensitivities that people have about sort of representing the human body. Um, mm. uh, there was <laughs> there was a famous incident actually where I did uh, a figure of Christ that was naked and it was displayed in a church with a tiny little loincloth added to it. I mean, and I understood that and I totally respected it um, in the context. Uh, and similarly, it, it, it sort of was around depictions of the human form and like where people's boundaries are with that, I think is, um, is understandably very variable. Because, um, you know, people come from different experiences and you know, if you were if you were um, displaying that same work outside of the church, would you have been as equally sort of okay with somebody putting a cloth over over it? Outside of a church, I think I would have no. Is the short version right? I mean, I, you understand that sensitivity in a in a church. Um, I mean, obviously the piece was respectful. Um, it was, I mean, and, you know, there's a long history of the, the nude human form as an expression of vulnerability rather than having anything to do with the sort of sexual. 
um, which is a tradition I'm kind of more interested in. Hmm. But but it is it it's contextual. Like again, you it's people's spiritual home, of right? Course. Their their home church, and so you know. Yeah. They, I think the interesting balance there from a, you know, pastoral standpoint would be the risk of potential scandal, right? Where even if the source of scandal is objectively unwarranted, like you can objectively say you really shouldn't be scandalized. This is historically 90% chance what Christ would have looked like on that cross. Nevertheless, it could scandalize someone and ulti- and we weigh the potential scandal from a pastoral standpoint greater than maybe the need of historical accuracy, right? So I, I, I sure. definitely understand that um in that in that context, but less so less so in others. Yeah, yeah. You always you always wanna go the extra mile. Absolutely. <laughs> you know. One of the other things that I that I think is really interesting, and kind of, you know, further on maybe this dichotomy or paradox um side of things, and I'm curious how this relates maybe to your art or perhaps it doesn't, but the idea of how you've maybe described yourself and I, and this description at least the one that i read was in kind of a broader context of uh your admiration for uh dorothy day and mm-hmm. you described yourself as um you know on some level and i'm paraphrasing here but you know very orthodox um but also kind of anti-establishment right I, first of all like i love that because it gives voice to a lot of the what I've felt is perhaps needed at a given moment in time. We all have our, you know, there's always historical moments for certain things, but it's also very unusual. So I have a bunch of questions potentially on this, but like dive in on that right now, the idea of sort of dogmatic orthodoxy and and sort of the sense of anti-establishment. What, what does that mean and, and and why in 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 your case in its instance why is that a you know a good thing as you look at it yeah well I think it's a good thing <laughs> mileage may vary um yeah no it, it's it's tricky and without like it being political because I don't think it needs to be political um there's there's this tendency both in like the the world, so to speak, and even within the church, I think, to kind of equate like orthodoxy in faith with this kind of left-right divide. I mean, and that doesn't doesn't necessarily make sense, right? Even on the face of it. I mean, and, and empirically it isn't true. I mean, it I do have a huge devotion to Dorothy Day. Um, I'm kind of involved with the group that's working for her, you know, the guild for canonization. Um, and, and she's a beautiful example of that being deeply what would be considered kind of conservative in the, the, her beliefs about sort of dogma and sort of deeply traditional in her sort of personal observance. Um, but also incredibly radical in kind of her opposition to the structures in society, including when kind of the church might be on the side of those structures a little bit more and a little less on the side of the sort of gospel themselves, um, which has certainly happened at various times throughout history. We we all know that. Um, and so I think in that's a kind of interesting, fruitful place per, in general, but I think particularly for the arts, um, 
Because in mm. that space where you sort of love the... Um, I'm trying to pick a word here, but you, you love sort of the underlying logical nature of the tradition, you know, the which is the essence in some sense of orthodoxy to my mind, like the seeing the value in the consistency of the system and seeing how that's a, a guide, you know, to point you towards the origin of the system, towards God. Um, but then being willing to be kind of subversive, more or less everywhere else, is in fact kind of like a, a, a perfect attitude, I think, for making interesting art. Um, it's kind of impossible to also, you know, frame that explanation out and not almost directly correlate it with the person of Jesus. Um, you know, yeah, who, I mean, that's that's the example he gives us, right? He does, you know, and and and, and on the we, we often forget the, the kind of radical. Um, you know, anti-establishment part, I think most people have been able, at least in my understanding of it, most people have been able to flesh out pretty well, you know, in the sense of here was some, you know, who was a person who was saying something decidedly new and very different and the authorities of the day didn't like him and all this other stuff. But we don't oftentimes talk about, you know, what you just described in the case of Dorothy Day as a deep kind of personal traditional sense or a, you know, liturgical, you know, uh, conservatism, what have you, because there's evidence of that, of Jesus in the scriptures as well, you know, saying, you know, one example, uh, you know, when he tells people to do as the, as the elders and the leaders say, not necessarily as they do, but to listen to what they're saying, because what they're saying is, is true, right? Um, and when he was preaching at the synagogues and, you know, he, he, uh, he would sit at the chair of uh, Moses and do all of these sort of things that were part of that very, you know, ancient practice. He could have come in and said, no, I want to not have anybody go to the temple, but he had his, you know, the temple was the temple and we, and he, in fact, he defended the honor of the temple and turned over the money, you know, his most radical act, right? In some cases, politically anyway, was like flipping a bunch of people's tables over and like whipping people with cords precisely because they had violated the sanctity of this kind of very traditional place that had been doing a particular kind of worship for centuries. So it, it, we, we kind of forget about that part of it. Um, and, and, and I do think it's, it's both. Yeah. I mean, and that, and trying to hold that tension, I think, keeps you honest um, in the sense that, like, you're if you're sort of honest and if you're trying to honestly follow that call, there's going to be some point of conflict, right? I mean, if if you always find yourself on the side of the establishment, it's kind of hard to believe you're on the side of the gospel. Um, but, you know, Correct. if you're mysteriously thinking you're on the side of the gospel while setting yourself against the church. Well, that's sounds a little fishy also. Is, is there a particular, you know, area when you think about the sort of establishment forces, you know, left and right of center, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of, you know, I don't know, sources of gravity, let's call it. And you've identified a few in some of your work, kind of consumerism and individualism and all these other things. Is there one particular area that you think from an American context were the establishment means for us that's directly at odds with the gospel? Yeah. Um, all of them. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. That's Easy a kind answer. Of flip answer. But yeah. Uh, but no, I mean, I think the... 
the way that kind of consumerist modes of defining who you are and what your value are via what you consume rather than via your you know relationships with others and your relationship with god is like the heart of that problem um like everything else that's a oversimplification but to some extent i think everything else flows from that i'm allowed to define who i am with no constraints except whether i have enough money to do it we've done a good job of exporting that to the rest of the world sadly too yeah yeah I mean, at the expense of traditional visual cultures around the world, traditional, you know, uh, everything, right? I mean, um, the sort of homogenization of culture, including the homogenization of visual culture. Yeah, no, no question. I definitely do see evidence of that. Um, you know, one of, one of the things that, um, that I think is part of this conversation around uh, you know, these kind of forces that are at work um, is the fact that we can kind of see them reflected so often everywhere now because the ways that we communicate, um, you know, as we've been talking about it, have evolved from kind of art to other means. And and it's in a way been made much more, you know, viral, much more, you, you can communicate much easier, right? But it's what you communicate that really perhaps has a lot less value. And so I feel that in some cases, it's it's so hard at this point to kind of um, rewind, right? Uh, I'm trying to mm -hmm. imagine what kind of thing would cause our culture to begin to, you know, be less consumerist or less individualistic. You know, w what are those things? And when I think about them, well, obviously there's like a you know act of God, of course, that mm -hmm. could help. Um, some and happens know, every day, and that happens every day, of course. Um, you know, there could be, a, you know, sadly, some kind of event of tragedy that could bring people together and kind of have them look past. Maybe COVID has been part of that to date. I don't know. I don't know how you view COVID vis-a-vis -vis some of these things we're talking about, especially as it relates to art. But I just, I wonder how and if, given the means that we communicate now are so instant and so global, like how this goes backwards, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I, I wish I had an answer because I'd be throwing punches for it. But <laughs> for sure. um, I think, though, the, the commitment to sort of slow down is important. This is something I, I think about a lot that like when you're, you know, your dial is always like one tick mark from the red zone, then like when you see someone falling down in the street, then you don't have the energy to help them up. Um, or maybe by the grace of God you do, but like it's it's only by the grace of God in that case that like, and I think to some extent, maybe COVID has taught people this, like you, that if you just dial it back a little, you have more, more to give. Um, you know, if if all your energy doesn't go into like chasing chasing your own tail, perhaps, but you know, trying as hard as you can <laughs> to to catch it, then like when that opportunity for grace comes, you'll be a little more ready to take it. Um, so just slowing down is, I think, something we can all do for that. Which 
you know, it can be explicitly in the form of trying to make space for God. Um, but I think he, he knows how to make his way in there, even if you just make space full stop. Mm. Has, has the COVID period for you, Anthony, personally been a, a prolific time, a time of maybe more neutral, like how, with, with respect to your artistic, um, not just output, obviously, but just, you know, your, your sense of, of being an artist during this time. Yeah. I, my art's definitely been a huge comfort for me through it because it has been something that's consistent and that was, it was affected by the pandemic in terms of my ability to do certain kinds of work and, and move back and forth between sort of living space and studio space. But I was been drawing every day um, since since actually the beginning of 2020, before the pandemic. But like during the pandemic, the fact that I was literally making a finished drawing every day mm. was an enormous, I think, form of stability um, and, and forcing me to slow down. Because I mean, something we've all learned, I think, from the pandemic is that you can be frenzied and panicked and running around like a chicken with your head cut off, even without leaving your bedroom. Um, but like to, to step back and like in a really disciplined may, way make a piece of work every day was was like was big. And it, mm. it's been a kind of productive time for me. It's been like an unsettled time in in life in general, but I've I've been definitely getting work done. Yeah, and I asked, by the way, that's a great COVID collection. If I can give you some, uh, you know, marketing advice from my world, (laughs) get that out immediately and I would buy it. Um, But, uh, you know, it it just, I asked because of the importance of what, you know, kind of these big events and moments can have. Actually, going back to Dorothy Day, I mean, uh, you know, at least of legend, the the earthquake in uh, San Francisco, right, in 1906 or 7, whenever that was played a big role with her kind of like sort of waking up at this idea of human beings kind of locking arms and helping one another. And it had a a big part to do with her journey of faith. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a good image. And then I, I sort of alternate between optimistic and cynicals. I mean, I feel like people are seeing that. I mean, that, you know, there's a, a lot of tension in the world right now, but I, overall, I think, it's made people kind of question the sort of structure of the everyday um, as it existed before. Um, and I think that's a good thing. It won't surprise you to know, Anthony, that uh, you just said, you know, optimist and cynic. For a guy who's also uh, artist and scientist and orthodox and radical, it's not too, too much of a stretch for me <laughs> to imagine that you might be optimistic and occasionally cynical. What 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 was it about Dorothy Day that you liked? Like, why her? Yeah, just because yeah, you're no. both New Yorkers, <laughs> right? I mean, I, part of it was. I mean, what I was really drawn to first was actually her voice as a writer. Like, she has this sort of like if you, a lot of people are just sort of familiar with her as kind of like the radical New York Mother Teresa. But if you like read her writing, she has this sort of very funny kind of sarcastic Dickensian voice in her writing. And I, I really just enjoyed her voice and her, in her writing, like how, that combination across, of, how'd you come across her writing? Um, of all things, I think I, in a secondhand bookstore in Seattle, the summer, the fateful summer I worked at Microsoft, um, it had a 
large effect on my art as well. But I randomly picked up a book of her selected writings, Ellsberg's book of her selected writings, um, in a secondhand bookstore, uh, and just started reading it that summer. Uh, and it kind of got under, got under my skin somehow. Um, the particular voice she has. I have like a maybe slightly better than Wikipedia level understanding of who she is, but, <laughs> but I, but the reason I think she's really interesting and consequently why I think you're very interesting too, is that this idea I've remarked on this before, not so much on this show, but I've remarked on this in, in other circles, the idea of, again, what you've given voice to, and maybe she's given voice to about the, these sort of two worlds, right? Of orthodoxy and let's call it political conservatism or, frankly, political progressivism. And the fact that the, the overlap between those two worlds um, should definitely never be one-to-one. Um, mm -hmm. And in fact, you probably make the case in the U.S. It, it can't be. It's impossible for them to be one-to-one -one on either level, right? But But the fact of it is that recognizing that those are two spheres and 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 being mindful of them it doesn't mean like you know rejecting a particular just it just means being mindful of them because you know i i joke about this but you know i i run in plenty of circles from a catholic standpoint that have me in rooms with super lovely people that were it not for khakis and blue blazers might not have anything to wear okay mm -hmm. um and and that's a very different cultural experience than the one that I come from. But I've noticed in certain ways that because of my different cultural background, that, you know, sometimes it takes a little bit, right? To, I have to build some bridges, even though from uh, the, the standpoint of orthodoxy, understanding, believing what the church teaches, believing the magisterium, hold, like all of that, we're like one to one, right? But this mm -hmm. expression of you know, how we behave in the world, what clothes I wear, you know, uh, as a sort of side note, I'd love your comment, but as a side note, you know, I, one of my board positions, the CEO asked me to put a tie on for one of our board meetings. I'm on the board, okay? Asked me to put a tie on. I, I don't ever, I like, I, I haven't worn a tie in 15 years, right? But sort of this sense of, you know, belonging vis-a-vis -vis that kind of view of, it, that culture, which I totally get, respect, understand, love it. Like I love pipes and G.K. Chesterton and all good. I get it, mm -hmm. you know. But this sort of overlap between these two things is is a is can be a difficulty, right? Can actually be a challenge to our, uh, you know, our our broader Catholic community. And I think it's important to have voices that are orthodox and decidedly not sort of in that vein, in order to make the point, if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and and voices that are orthodox, but also, you know, that are, are both, people always make this dichotomy right, and I actually hate it, but like, uh, that are both big C Catholic and little C Catholic, yeah. right? That, yeah. that, you know, traditional African blacksmithing is as beautiful a, a historical tradition of the visual arts as statues of saints and churches. I mean, there's a different basis in, in faith, obviously, and not to dismiss that, but I mean, as a, formally as a visual tradition or, or Native American wood carving, I mean, those are traditions that like, and, and they are traditions, like, right? There's, an, there's a history, there's uh, an, an internal logic to them. 
and they're they're beautiful, refined traditions. I mean, the, and those are just random examples of like being able to like fully appreciate that and like pull that in rather than being, I don't know, the the the, the stereotype right of like the kind of traditionally minded Orthodox person who thinks that sort of everything that's happened in Western art since since post Michelangelo was kind of like just the the gradual collapse of Western civilization, right. which is which has reached its end game here. It was like Michelangelo and just like a thousand Andy Warhols is kind of what they right. what they might imagine. Right. It's all Andy Warhol from after Michelangelo. Um I don't know. They yeah, that that sort of like both the embrace of the weird and uh, the the embrace of what makes of, of the tradition that makes good weird good and and allows you to distinguish it from bad weird um i think is is really important in the arts at least to me um and i and i think that same aesthetic kind of needs to motivate without getting into politics needs to motivate our politics a little bit more in, in by politics, you mean secular and ecclesial or just secular? I think both, yeah. I think both suffer from the tendency to equate the two in particular, but... So I'm going to, I'm going to, there, there was a, a, this is sort of my, my last point on the, on this particular topic, but just to kind of make it, uh, make the point, I, I'd love your reaction to this quote. Um and I'll tell you who it is afterwards, but very much along this kind of lens, right? He says, I think America and the West might be spinning out of control. Besides what Christopher West tried to do in his more populist presentations, a conservative sort of Catholicism has become bogged down in a really off-putting type of snobbish intellectualism. And because of this, it has utterly failed to address the serious problems posed by popular culture. Mm. Do you agree with that sentiment? I think it can be true. Um, I think... It, it it reminds me of sort of the religious conservatives critique of like academic the academic left in that it, it sounds like perhaps it's focusing on all of five people um though their their influence of those five people might be outsized um so i i can see the truth in it um and that you know i <laughs> the kind of ridiculous solution that like pops into my head is we should all go and build random folk shrines in our home parishes. Like that's what we need. We need like more like folk expressions of like visual religiosity. I mean, that would be awesome to my mind. We like get ourselves you know, every church in the nation get ourselves a nice little statue of Our Lady of Guadalupe sitting outside somewhere and everybody just puts anything they want there. That would be like amazing. That would be, <laughs> that could fix America right there. Um, if you, you can have that idea if you want to yeah, <laughs> run with I'm it. Gonna, I'm, I'm going to run with it. Are you kidding me? I'm going to run with like five things after this show. But but that but that example of folk religiosity, um, it, like ex explain that to, to us. Is uh, I, I know you're kind of in tongue in cheek, but I yeah. mean. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but it's a little bit not, right? That you, uh, 
I think it, it touches on a couple things, one of which is that it's for everyone, because the faith is obviously for everyone. It's not only for people who can make their way through the, you know, the Summa Theologica. Right. Um, and, and it's participatory, um, which is really, really important, right? That's the, all, the other critique of kind of the Catholics often get, right? That to just kind of sit there slightly sleepy and don't sing, and then you go home. Um, and that's, a, that's an unfair critique, but it's an unfair critique that comes from somewhere like most unfair critiques. Sure. Uh, and it's, it's my own bias because I'm a visual artist, but like, and also because I find all of those folk traditions really, really beautiful of sort of retablos and santos and ex-voto offerings. Um, that that seems like a kind of great place for sort of participatory, uh, you know, in some sense, you're crowdsourcing your sure. religious visual art there. Um, and that's a that's a beautiful tradition. I mean, it, it's a powerful experience, as you know, I'm I'm sure you have. If you go to a, a shrine and you see like all the little, little ex voto offerings, um, I mean, they do that in Italy the same the way they do it in Spain, the same way they do it in Latin America, right? You know, wow, here's like, I've had someone paint a picture of me being thrown from an automobile and dashing my head against a tree. And I, I present it to the church in gratitude for the fact that my brains didn't fall out. That's amazing. That's, right. That's great. My, uh, my wife and I went to Fatima years ago. This is before she's a convert to the faith. And uh, before she came into the church, uh, and in Fatima, there's, you know, all these beautiful um, outdoor areas. And one of them is a place that has, you know, it's sort of like the large, the turbo version of where you have the little votive candles and you light them to, you know, to, to ask for a prayer or make a particular request of God or ask for intercession of a saint. It's like a monster sized version of that. It's enormous. And in addition to candles, which can be bought in every single size imaginable, they also have wax figures, these assorted wax figures of like an arm or a leg or a little infant baby or an old man. And, you know, the idea there is that it's, you know, if your offering has to do with, you know, somebody's leg healing, that you might want to grab that particular, um, you know, molding or wax made thing and offer that along with your candle, right? And my wife, who's not Catholic, like sees the little wax babies and, and grabs one and like takes it with her because she thinks like, oh, it's so cute. It's like a little souvenir. And then, of course, we found out, you know, months later, or she found out months later that, in fact, that was probably somebody's uh, prayer for their sick child <laughs> she ended up walking off with. But I remember in looking at all of this imagery, you know, having the sense of, wow, there's real people behind this thing, right? And a real community yeah. behind this. And it really made the idea of the petition, the idea of the prayer, the idea of that like request that much more real for me, who was a total outsider to it, right? It, I kind of felt like in communion with, with those folks, I guess, by virtue of it. Yeah. And you have this like visceral experience of other people's burdens that they're bearing, which is something we're so impatient with, I think, in the modern world and in in the U.S., you know, so lacking in sympathy and lacking in understanding and, and lacking in willingness to see people who are bearing various kinds of, of burdens, whether that's sort of physical disabilities or 
emotional problems or whatever. I mean, and it, it, it's like there and in, in tiny wax form made like incarnate. Um, there's something beautiful about that, I think. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you. So, Anthony, an hour goes by fast, does it not? Yep. We're we're getting we're getting close to that. So um, we're going to need to have uh, you know us part ways sadly until uh, you know episode two of our uh, of our conversation. <laughs> the revenge. But, that's right. Exactly. We're going to talk only about uh, warm brains in the next episode. Um, which of be course, awesome. you, it would be pretty one sided. But at least I would I, you know I would have a lot of oohs and ahs on this side. But beyond that, I couldn't participate. But um, before we move on to our final segment, which if you've listened to the show, is a segment called Wait What? Um, I wanted to just give you a minute uh, tell, to tell folks how um, you know, they can follow your work and, and seek out the, you know, b- maybe on both sides, right? But certainly the artistic side. I didn't mention this on the show, but I will. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes that that, that particular work, I think it was uh, Unwilling Clarity, if I'm remembering yeah. correctly. That first, this uh, for those who, who are hearing for the first time, this amazing sculpture, large six foot or so, right, Anthony, you said? Something yep. like that? Yeah, yeah, about a six foot wingspan. Six foot wingspan depiction of, you know, seraphim slash cherubim, uh, you know, angels, uh, uh, an angel. And it was it was so arresting to me when I saw it. I knew instantly what it was. And I think it, it, it really depicted the angelic even though it's not material, as the way it should be, right? Which is this awe-inspiring creature rather than this little, you know, kind of fluffy uh, baby with wings. So I loved it. That's what got me into you. And I did my research and I got in touch with you. But um, but tell people how they can find out what you're up to and what you've done and, and get connected to your work. Yeah. Um, to see what I'm up to now, definitely Instagram is the, the best way to find me. And if you just search for... Anthony Santella. I think I may actually be Santella.Anthony on Instagram. I always forget my own Instagram handle. Um, <laughs> but it's it's pretty easy to find. Um, and you know, I see what I'm working on sculpturally as well as some of the drawing work I've been doing during COVID. Um, and then I'm online, um, AnthonySantella.com, though, like many websites, it gets updated once a decade. Nice. Yeah, and it is Santella.Anthony. Um, that's your handle on Instagram. Are you are you um you working on anything specific right now or toward anything specific? Uh let's see. I just finished carving a dugout canoe. So I've been oh, wow. working at like opportunities to bring it out on the water. Um which has been really fun. I mean kind of it relates to this, I think to some of what we've talked about in you know it the, the visual arts is being also sort of a practical area of craft. So like it's a sculpture, which is a functional boat. Um, and I've been taking it out on the water, going to actually bring it out to an event on Staten Island this coming weekend. Um, I may be starting on another one. Once you've built one boat, I think it's kind of an addiction. I guess. Uh, and I, I'm always working on a five or six carvings at a time. I tend to have a, a short attention span, so I, I rotate. Very cool. Well, we're, we're going to put all of this in the, in the show notes so people can follow your work. Um, and, uh, and yeah, just uh, amazing stuff. And, you know, obviously continue all of that good stuff. All right, Anthony, are you ready to play Wait What? I'm braced. All right, here we go. Question number one. We've talked about Dorothy Day quite a bit, so it's fitting to have a question on her. So, Anthony, which of the following is false? 
about servant of God Dorothy Day, which is false about her, okay? It's this cool quiz. Yes. Number one, in, there's only one that's false, though. It, number one, in college, she rejected organized religion because she didn't see so-called religious people helping the poor. Number two, when she traveled, she always carried with her a Bible, a missal, a copy of the Divine Office, and a jar of instant coffee. And number three, her final arrest and jailing was in 1969 at the age of 70. Which of those three is false about Dorothy Day? She rejected organized religion in college. She always traveled with a broad accoutrement of Catholic things, including a jar of coffee. Or her final arrest and jailing was at the age of 70 in 1969. Mm, I thought she got arrested a little later than that. So I'm going to question the third one, because the first two sound right. If that is that your final answer? That is my final answer. Well, you are correct, my friend. Her, her last jailing was actually later in 1973. She was actually 75, um, and she got arrested for um, protesting along with Cesar Chavez out here in yes. California. The United Farm Workers in California. So yes, you're absolutely right. She was even older. I don't. How many? Do you know how many times she was arrested? It's a bunch of times. All right. She's, it's a lot of times. Yeah. Um. It's a pretty was a pretty long cumulative time spent in jail, but I can't remember what it was total. Yeah. Well, pa- we always could use another patron saint of uh, those imprisoned or recently imprisoned, perhaps, um, or the civil disobedient. So uh, we'll see what happens. Um. Okay. Question number two. Anthony, who do you think would have made for a better student in the area of sculpture? Okay, so who would have been a better sculptor student? St. Thomas the Apostle, the Doubting Thomas, right, from from Scripture, St. Thomas Aquinas, the Angelic Doctor, or Thomas Merton? Which would have been the better student in the area of sculpture? Oh, definitely Doubting Thomas. You got to can't trust until you've touched <laughs> seen and touched nice nice absolutely that's what you know what you're dealing with you know the medium and you can work it very good all right so saint thomas the apostle all right and finally question number three this is a multi-parter okay so anthony you've been asked to curate a massive exhibit for a very wealthy benefactor in a major city we'll just call it new york but you've been asked to curate a massive exhibit for a wealthy benefactor in new york you're gonna get a chance to feature any and all work you see fit, but he's asked at a, as a precondition that you personally debut a new work at this exhibit. Now, curiously, he requests you limit your creation only to a subject common to a research laboratory. Number one, do you take the gig? And number two, what do you create? So big benefactor, and he tells you, you can only, you're going to run this thing. You can pick whatever you want, but you have to include one of your pieces. It's got to be new. And you can only do it about something that you find in a research lab. Do you take the exhibition and what do you create? Absolutely, I take it. And I think that would probably be the op- perfect opportunity to undertake a long standing intention, which is to do about a, a thousand life size scale series of sculptures of the worm nervous system as it emerges. Beautiful. I can't I can't imagine anyone else on planet Earth doing that, but you definitely could pull that off. And I bet you'd be amazing, amazing to see. I'll send you some pictures. You can 
Definitely. You can please see what do. it would look like. Yeah, please do. I, I, I'd be the. I remember dissecting earthworms in you know biology in tenth grade, but that's the extent of my knowledge of uh, worm anatomy. So that'd be awesome to uh, to check that out. Anthony, thank you for playing. Wait, what? Thank you for being on the show. Great conversation. Thank you. Um, you know, God bless your work, which I view as a ministry, and I'm, perhaps you do as well. All of the creation that you do, um, and and that God continue to prosper. That I think we need a lot more art, and we also need a lot more, you know, Orthodox radicals um, out there. I think at this time and place. So, God bless you on your ministries, and uh, God thanks bless again. you and your ministry too. Thank it's you. It's been an honor. Much. We'll talk soon. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's call-usa.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.